How are we this week? Good? All right. I know it's dark, and if you're like me, it was kind of a sleepy weekend. I know maybe it was the weather today, so I get that. I actually took a cat nap myself as I watched Netflix on the couch this afternoon. It's my favorite place to uh, sleep and take a nap. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here. If you are new with us, and it's our pleasure to have you uh, with us, we are in the middle of a series, really kind of on the last few weeks. Uh, we have two more weeks after this, and we move into Advent, where we have been studying the book of Nehemiah, and we have been asking ourselves a question. The question we ask ourselves is, what does it look like for the people of God to exist for the city where they live, in our case, the city of Portland? Uh, and so our whole series is built around this idea of being for the city where God has placed us, regardless if we've lived here our whole lives or if we've moved here 20 years ago or if we moved here last week. Um, what does that look like and what does that mean as a community, as a faith community? What are the implications of that? So far in the second half of this study, we've seen the rebuilding of the people of God. We look back at chapter 8, we saw the people in the Word of God and what did it look like for them to be underneath the authority of the Bible. In chapter 9, last week, we saw the people in prayer. We saw where there's this confession through um, confession and repentance. And so they were confessing their sins and repenting before God and saying, we have a need for you. And we saw how we still have that need and that posture today. And then tonight, we're going to be looking at... Um, the people and a commitment to obedience and a covenant. And so we're going to kind of see the, this transition from the confession and repentance. Now they're going to say, here's the commitment that we're making to you, God. We commit to obey you, and we want to actually covenant with you. Uh, Nehemiah is not just about Nehemiah. Hopefully you have realized that by now. It's about the people living in a right relationship with God, which is what we want. We want the people of Sojourn in this room to live in a right relationship with God. We want the people of the city of Portland to live in a right relationship with God, which is why we exist for the city. All three of these chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, they give us a picture of what spiritual renewal involves. First, in, in chapter 8, we saw the reestablishing of the authority of Scripture in our lives. What does that mean to actually sit underneath the authority of Scripture We've gotten away from that a lot of times in our own culture. We, we just kind of pick and choose the parts that we would want to follow, and we'll kind of put on the cultural lenses, and then we'll read the Bible and say, I don't really want to follow this part, and this part makes me really uncomfortable. But what does it actually look like to put on our Bible lenses and our gospel lenses and then actually interpret the culture around us? Chapter 9, we saw the repenting of sin. And yes, we are still sinners, and so if that's a new concept to you, I'm hoping that tonight we, we can all be convicted of the sin that we've committed even this last week and that we would repent of those sins. And then uh, we see the third thing is resolving to walk in new patterns of obedience as the people of God, which is what we're really going to see as the focus tonight. We're actually going to attempt to cover two and a half chapters. Now, before that scares you and you freak out and think, man, he's trying to do that whole Ezra thing and like preach for six hours. That's not what's going to happen. Um, but if you look at the portion, we're going to look at just different portions of these chapters. Not all of them because the majority of these verses are names and, and roles of the people. And while they are important, we're not going to spend our time reading through these lists, but I do encourage you to do that on your own. Some of the names may be very challenging for you, but um, it is part of the Bible. It's included for a reason, and so I, I do encourage you to do that. And I want us to think about, we all know people who have expressed sorrow for sin, who've said, you know what, I realized, man, this uh, lifestyle I'm living is not right, and so they express the sorrow for it, and they recognize their need for a change, but oftentimes without ever changing. It's for that reason that we're going to see the people here they make a formal commitment to change in chapter 10, and they're going to express this change through a covenant. Now think about Christians, Christ followers, believers. 
using kind of multiple terms here, when they are in a new covenant and when they sign something like a church covenant, what they're doing is they're making a covenant with one another and they're making it a covenant with God that they're going to keep these things together. Uh, not all of us in the room, but some of us are kind of part of the, the core who moved, who felt this calling specifically to move to the city of Portland to help plant Sojourn Church or come and help support the calling to plant Sojourn Church. And some of you don't know this, but we actually commit it together. We actually have a covenant where we covenant it before God and to one another and said we want to live out the values of what God is calling us to do, this vision he's calling us to in the city of Portland, and to live out the values of gospel, the values of family, and the value of mission, and put the good of our whole and the good of our city in front of our own needs, our own wants, and our own desires. And so that's what we're going to see the people do here. They're going to covenant together, and they're going to say, I'm going to put all those things aside for the greater good of the whole. Now, chapter 10 Verses 1 through 27, it's a long list of those who put their names to the covenant. And it's designed to show us that the entire community was part of this. We've got the priests, we've got the Levites, and we have lay leaders. And all of them were wholeheartedly behind it. So we see these different categories of people. It didn't really matter where you were in the spectrum. They, they were all behind this thing. And we see these are prominent people in the community. And many of their names we have seen appear before throughout the book of Nehemiah. And so they've kind of been with us on this whole journey, but now they're saying, man, we want to put this all together, and we want to come together, and we want to covenant this before God and before one another to keep these things. And what we're going to find is four categories of people who sign the document. First is Nehemiah and Zedekiah, which is many believe to be the chief of uh, secretary to Nehemiah, and that's from verse 1. Some of these I would encourage you maybe to even jot down if you're taking notes, and you can go back and study this on your own and look a little bit further. The second group of people that sign this document are Israel's priest. That's in verses 2 through 8. We actually see 21 names on this list. The majority of those are family names, about 15 of that 21. Then the third group is the 17 names of Levites. That's in verses 9 through 13. And some, some of those are family names. And then we even see individuals who explained and applied the law when it was first read, if you remember back to chapter 8, verse 7. And then we're going to see the fourth group that signed this was the names of 44 of the noble families of Israel. And that's in verses 14 through 27. These signers of the covenant were meant to be, represent the entire people as a concluding postscript to the list of names, as this clearly indicates for us. Now, we will look at a few of these verses. So if you have your copy of Scripture, you can open it to Nehemiah chapter 10. If you don't own a copy of Scripture, we have some in the back. That is our gift to you if you don't have one. Um, and I don't know if Lindsay's in here or not, but if she is, I think uh, these verses will be on the screen next to me. Verse 28 and 29 of chapter 10. It says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God. Our Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Now, before we look at the specifics of the covenant that they lay out here, I want to point out three helpful characteristics of the covenant. The first characteristic is the authority of the Bible. The people were re responding here to the authority of Scripture in their lives. There is nothing, in my opinion, and really I'm under this conviction, there's nothing of greater importance than obedience to God and his word in our life. I pointed out last week that many of us are from uh, what they call the cause generation. We're cause conscious. And those things are great and causes are great, but we can sometimes get them out of order. And so 
We care for the environment. Absolutely, we do want to care for the environment. We want to fight AIDS in Africa. Absolutely, we want to fight AIDS in Africa. We want to take care of animals and the planet and all these things. Like, absolutely, we do. We, and we care about social justice issues. I heard a pastor one time that said, don't socialize the gospel. Gospelize the social. And, and I see what he means by that. When you get these things out of order, and that I think that when we obey Scripture and His Word, it's all encompassing underneath that. And so naturally, the response as we're living that out would be taking care of all those things, but not doing those things to the neglect of the Bible and, and the Word of God in our life. Because I believe that obedience to the Word of God trumps all those things in comparison. And once again, as we live it out, the fruit of that will be us living out and taking care of those things as well. We actually see two or saw two explicit references to the law here in verses 28 and 29. See, in 28, it defines the signers of the covenant as those who had separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. And in 29, it tells us how these same people, they bound themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So they were taking the authority of Scripture very, very seriously in their lives, and I hope that's what we continue to do today here in 2019 uh, into 2020 and beyond. The second characteristic that we see here in this covenant is the importance of the temple. Verses 30 through 39, they cover a wide spectrum of ancient Jews' lives. And a large portion deals with the temple and temple worship. And so what you see in that set of verses, and we'll look at these a little bit in detail, is you'll see the temple tax. You then see the first fruits of crops and trees that would be given. You see regular offerings, and then you see tithes. And what is true that Nehemiah's efforts were primarily directed at the rebuilding of the city's walls. That's what we've kind of focused on this entire series. We also learn here that Nehemiah was also committed to the temple. He knew the temple and the worship of God would bind the people into a self-conscious and cohesive nation. So he saw that as things were properly ordered, that the temple still had its place of importance as they rebuilt the city, as they rebuilt these people. The third characteristic is the responsibility of the people. The people saw a strong sense of responsibility. The dominant word that we see here is we collectively take on this responsibility, which is why they covenant together in this document. It refers to the whole group together. And so we saw in verses 28 and 29 that the people ob made it an obligation to themselves to keep the whole law. And we will see how they express their intentions through three specific commitments that were found in verses 30 through 39. The first commitment is the family. In verse 30, it says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. The problem with intermarriage here, and this isn't talking about mixed marriages, mixed races. That's not what this is talking about. There's been people in the past who've tried to abuse this verse, and that is not what that is saying. What this is talking about here is it's talking about intermarriage with those who have not separated themselves for God. And so we see this an abomination for the people who, who are saying, man, we want to worship God, and we want to follow his ways. And then we've got these people over here who go, well, I don't want anything to do with that, saying that is what we are not allowing. That those who have separated themselves, that are devoted to Yahweh, you're committed not to intermarry with them because they are idolaters, because they worship another God. This, this may sound like a harsh commitment imposed on the people, but rather, this is what the people of God here are devoting themselves to doing and committing to the life of holiness. This wasn't something that was really imposed on them. This was something that they willingly entered into and said, we only want to marry the people who are going to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Single people in the room, that's what I would recommend to you. 
to submit your life first to God and then submit your marriage that you will marry someone who's also um, submitting themselves to God. Now, if you're already married and it's too late, I'm not saying that you should not stay with that person, but you can pray for that person. So I'm not really into missionary dating, but missionary marriage, if you're already married, then, then sure, we can, we can go that way and talk about that. And this points to reality then and now. Then it points to the, real, the, the reality of the relationship between God and Israel under the old covenant. Now it points to Christ and the church under the new covenant. The second thing that we see, a specific commitment here, is the Sabbath. Verse 31. It says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the 17th year and the exaction of every debt. So there's actually three parts to this. We see first is the weekly Sabbath, which was actually uh, referred to earlier in our, in our worship gathering. Uh, the second is the sabbatical year, so every seven years. And then the third is the consular obligation to cancel all debts. And so keeping the Sabbath is evidence of faith, and it has nothing to do with legalism. Once again, we kind of hear these things, and we think, like, man, that's legalistic. Like, uh, I remember growing up, my, my dad wouldn't uh, change the oil or cut the grass or do any of those kind of manual tasks on Sunday for that reason. He was like, no, we can't do that because the neighbors, you know, the neighbors, and I was like, are we really not allowed to do that? Or what about when the car's about to go out of gas? Like, you still go to the gas station and put gas in the car, but that was okay, and that was kind of an acceptable thing. But what we see here with these people is that the Sabbath for them was a declaration of trust in Yahweh. Today, we fulfill the Sabbath by trusting in Christ and by resting in him every single day. I just read a book this week by uh, Jeff Bethke, and I love this quote. He said, at its core, Sabbath is an invitation to fill the earth with God's presence. How beautiful is that? That as we rest, there's this invitation to us to fill the earth with God's presence. Can you imagine how absurd the sabbatical year must have sounded? Hey, we know you have this job. We know you have this career. We know you went to school for this. We know you're a farmer. Every seven years, don't do it. You, you just need to rest. And, and you don't need to work your land. Just let it be. Let it overgrow. Let it go to waste. I know, I don't think any of us in here are farmers, but we live in Oregon. And there's a lot of farms when we get outside of Portland. So we can imagine these farms and how beautiful they are. And we love going to Savi Island. But imagine every seven years roll around, they don't do anything to them. And they just kind of overgrow and it just goes to waste. And the farmer was to do no farming in any way. That would have sounded absurd. But can you imagine? Put your place in, in their shoes. Or even for us today, can you imagine having enough trust in God to take a year of rest every seven years? I can't imagine that. When I was preparing this, I was actually thinking about Ray Tate, who I think he told me this week he's been teaching for 17 years. And so I think, man, he would have had at least two of these where he got to take a whole year off of teaching, and then he'd be like halfway up to a, a third one. Like, how great would that be? I mean, we're in a culture that is exhausted. When I talk to you guys, you just have these long faces, and you're like, I'm so busy, I'm so tired. I'm like, man, we all need to get to this seventh year and just take a long, year-long nap and rest and trust in God. But how absurd does this sound? Like, we can't go a whole year without working. You know, it's hard for us to go more than a day or a weekend without working. And then perhaps the most difficult thing here is they were to release the debts every seven years. So every time the seventh year rolled around, the money that one was owed wasn't owed anymore. So if someone owed you money, maybe they're, they were um, leasing out some of your land or they borrowed money from you for something, and they owed you all this money, the seventh year rolled, you're hoping they pay you back before you get there is my, my assumption, at least I would be. The seventh year rolls around, it's like, okay, you owe this much, but now you don't know any of it. It's no longer owed to us. And I can only imagine the only way that someone could let go of that debt would be by faith, that God would provide for them because they're not getting paid back that physical and tangible um, uh, finances that they were owed. Now, what about us today? Are we obligated to keep the Sabbath? 
much is being written on Sabbath and rest these days, and probably for good reason. Um, I actually have a few books I'd recommend. Um, one of these is Subversive Sabbath by a guy named A.J. Swoboda. Uh, A.J. used to pastor here in the city of Portland. I know he stepped down from his church recently, but I don't know if he's still in the city or not, but a really good book on Sabbathing. The second is a book by Garden City, uh, John Mark uh, Comer, which is uh, Bridge City Church here in Portland. It's kind of a theme of the pastors in Portland writing these books. And then the third one is Sabbath, Finding Rest, Renewal, and Delight in Our Busy Lives by a guy named Wayne um, Muller. And so there's many, many more others out there. These are just three that I've read that I would recommend because I've actually uh, worked through them myself. But that still doesn't answer our question. So what about us today? Are, are we required to keep the Sabbath? Are we, are, we, are we not? Are we out of it? Are we in it? In Romans 14, verses 5 through 6, it says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And so why do I share that verse? If you feel that you should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, then do so. And I believe that you should. But if you're convinced in your own mind that the Sabbath is not something you're obligated to do because you would say, hey, I'm from this camp that says that, that Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law and he brought it to its appointed uh, consummation and by faith, you look at what the Sabbath is pointed to as an ultimate rest in Jesus, then be convinced in your own mind. Don't necessarily try to convince others, but be convinced in your own mind. And so you can say, hey, I think you have a leg to stand on here. However, I would add this. Resting physically from labor is biblical and practically wise. So I think in our culture, I'm almost one who would want to mandate it to say, no, you do need to do this because we're just work, 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 work. Our culture says pull up your bootstraps and, uh, you know, 60 hours, like, oh, that's a light work week. We need to work 70 hours and you, and you don't need to sleep as much. So I'd almost say study it, be convinced in your own mind, but rest is a biblical value and I believe that we do need to rest. This is a practice I'm trying to implement myself. Um, my dad had a really good work ethic and so I think that's where I get him. I don't know if it's genetic or if I just observed him. He would never say he's a workaholic, but I would say he was pretty close to that. Uh, sorry if you're listening to this, Dad. We'll have a conversation, I'm sure, after you listen to it. But um, so I kind of I have that. I know I can work. I know I, ca I, can, I can get out there and work, and I can go, 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 go. And I can, man, I can go without sleep. I mean, think about my favorite beverage of choice is coffee. And I can drink more of it just because I know I can go with that much less sleep. And so for me, resting is a really, really hard thing. And so I've gotten to where I am more convicted. I need this rest and that I need this Sabbath. And so I'm trying my best. I'm not great at it. I have to slap my hand every time a Sabbath rolls around. Hey, don't do that. Don't check your email. Don't get on social media. And, and what does that rest day look like for me? And so I do encourage you to take regular rhythms of rest. The third characteristic that we see here is the temple support in verses 32 through 39. So the third way they would obey scripture, it's, it's a little bit uh, longer uh, verses here, but it's filled with references of various offerings and references to the house of God or the, or the temple. So in verses 32 through 39, it says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, 
we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the houses, in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive these tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are. As well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so we see a, a number of times here, a total of nine where they observe temple support in this section here, in this set of verses. In verse 32 and 33, it says it was for the service of the house of our God and for, the, for all the work of the house of our God. And so we see here that the people had a responsibility to cover the cost of various items for worship in the temple, and they saw that as, as, as something they should take on for themselves. In verses 34 and 35, it says to our God's house and to the Lord's house. And so we see they also bring wood for the altar. So it's not only financially, they bring wood for the altar and they bring their first fruits of the crops. Now I know that, that some of us give online and some of us give in our offering box over here that we have in the back, but we can also do other things. And we always think of the generosity in just terms of finances, but we can also contribute more than money. We can contribute food. Think about our local partnerships like Portland Rescue Mission. I know we primarily work at their, their, uh, the, the men's house where they live, but they have all kinds of donations for, for clothing. Uh, I think about Embrace Oregon. They, at the DHS Alberta office, they have a clothing closet, a church that's part of a network we're connected to called Garden Church. One of their guys oversees that. And we were talking recently, and I said, hey, man, let us know when you guys are going to be doing a clothing drive. Like, there's no reason for us to have to recreate that and do our own clothing drive, but Sojourn can contribute clothing and coats, and just tell us what's needed, and we'll put it out there that we can work together and partner on this. Um, you can also contribute food items. That's something else Portland Rescue Mission is always looking for. And there's a, a plethora of other um, avenues where you can be generous with the resources that God has given you, not only with uh, the finances that God has given you. Verse 36, we see they wanted to give an offering to the house of our God and those who serve in our God's house. And so we see the firstborn of every household and all of the flocks belong to our Lord. And the people redeemed their firstborn by payment of redemption price, as it was a reminder that the life was a gift from God and it was owed to him. And then verses 37 through 39, we see at the storerooms of the house of our God and in the house of our God, that we would not neglect the house of our God. And so we see that the tithes supported the personnel in the temple, such as the Levites, but the Levites too were called to tithe. And so to summarize chapter 10, the people are committing to support the work of ministry happening in the temple. And the temple was all about God's glory. It was about knowing him, it was about worshiping him, it was about being forgiven by him and declaring his glory among the nations. And that's the purpose that this temple served. And then we see that in these offerings, this generosity was offerings made to the Lord. And so in the new covenant, we have someone greater than the temple, but we're also referred to as the temple. So how do we apply this today? How does Sojourn Church practically apply this? Well, as Christians, we're not supporting one physical building. I think about the Church of Portland and all of these local expressions. We're not supporting one big, huge structure being built somewhere in the city of Portland. Maybe that would get the attention of our city. It'd be like the opposite of what we're known for. We're trying to like, compete with Moda Center and build some big, huge, huge uh, fine, uh, structure here. But we are called to support the work of ministry. 
supporting the work of ministry in and through the local church, in my opinion and conviction, is a great responsibility. It's a great privilege, and we take it very serious. When you give offerings to this church, when you give offerings to our church, you declare that you're not a worshiper of money, that you value the advance of the gospel, that you value the planting of churches, and that you have concern for the poor, and that you have an appreciation for those who, who are leading out in our ministries here. Underneath it all is a trust in God. I listened to a former pastor of mine this morning, um, usually about 7.30, 8 o'clock, I'll come by our building and just put our sign out by the road so people can drive by it all day so they know when we gather. And so I was listening uh, to a pastor named J.D. Greer, who's in uh, Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and he was actually preaching on, on being generous. They're going through a, a series called First, and he said, you cannot be a fully committed disciple of Jesus if you're not trusting him with your finances and giving your first and your best. Now, that's not a popular opinion, but as I heard that, I thought about that. And one of my things as a leader of Sojourners, I want us to grow in our generosity. I want us to be people who are giving our first and our best, not so we can hoard it for ourselves, but so we can give it back, so that we can give more to these partnerships in the city, so we can give more to church planning, so we can give more to even leadership development, all of these things that we want to do and value as a church. On a side note, every penny matters. I know I had seasons in my life where I thought, man, all I've got is the change in my pocket. I know we don't really carry change much anymore, but all I've got is that last sweat, swipe of my debit card. But you think every penny actually does matter. It's something we're trying to teach our children who, who literally only have pennies in their penny banks. So don't think your giving doesn't matter. We are growing as a church in many areas. And one of those is budgeting. That's not the fun part of church planning they tell you about. Like, hey, you have to come up with a budget. Like this fake budget that you put out there two or three years ago before you moved to Portland with your church plant, like you eventually have to like dial that in and actually come up with a realistic budget, which is all made up of what comes in and what goes out. And um, so I've been working on that. And I've got a businessman who's working on that, who's giving some of his time, thankfully, to help us come up with what that will actually look like. But this helps us plan as a church. This helps us function as a church. And I want us to get to a place where our, our growth matches up and our giving matches up with the values that we have as a church as we grow numerically as a church as we grow in faith as a church i hope us to see us grow in this area as well every penny matters some of you may not know this but of every dollar that's given four percent of that goes to church planting and not to our church i know we're a church plant that might sound crazy but from day one from the first time someone laid a five dollar bill or a twenty dollar bill um we four percent of that went to church planting and we're actually kind of putting an account for a future church plant, saying, hey, we want to bless another church plant. It may be here in our city. It may be somewhere else in the country. We also do overseas missions. We have our Christmas missions offering coming up. You guys got to hear from Mike McCoy last week, who's going to London. The, every single penny that goes to that will help support guys like Mike. None of it's going to stay here for ourselves. And so we want to grow in that. Uh, we also uh, we give away six, uh, another 6% of our internal tithe and offering. So already, as a small church, we give away 10%. And I want us to get to a place where we feel like we can be free to give even more of that away. And that we can give to our local ministry partners, such as Portland Rescue Mission and Embrace Oregon or Vernon School. That when they call us up and say, we've got a financial need, that we don't go, sorry, we don't have it. We can go, yes, where do we write the check? Let's do that. And so I want us to see the grow. And so every single penny matters. So please hear that. So this section of chapter 10, it showed us a few things. One is the Lord is the point of marriage as it displays God's love for his people. Second is the Lord is the point of the Sabbath. The old covenant Israel rested from their labor to declare that Yahweh was their provided, provider. And we today can rest from our physical labor too, declaring the same. And more significantly, we find rest underneath all rest by trusting in Jesus. And third, the Lord is the point of temple ministry. 
being with God, knowing him, enjoying his presence, and declaring his glory among the nations. That is the purpose of temple ministry. So as we transition out of chapter 10 and we look at chapters 11 and the first part of 12, what we're going to see is more lists. We've seen many lists throughout the book of Nehemiah, which got me thinking about the Titanic. And there was a list on the Titanic. When the Titanic left Southampton on April 10th, 1912, there were more than 2,000 people on board. The passenger log found had an amazing cross-section of people. There were the first-class people, which included aristocrats, businessmen, politicians, military personnel, industrialists, bankers, and sportsmen, professional sportsmen. Then we had second class. Those were doctors, professors, journalists, lawyers, and clergy. And then we had third class, the servants, the nannies, the nursemaids, and the immigrants. Lists are important. I think we would probably agree with that. There's some lists out there. When you go and check into your peak performance, like where Andrea goes to the gym, like they want to make sure that she's on the list because we pay our, you know, paramount that she's on the list so she can get into the gym to work out. So lists are important. They give vital information to where we are supposed to be. And we've seen a lot of lists throughout these, throughout the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 11 and 12, we're going to find two more lists. Verses 1 through 19, it describes a list of those who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, that may sound funny to us. Because in, in, in 2019, like, everybody wants to move into the city. Like, everybody wants to move into Portland. It's, it's trendy and it's cool now. But people did not want to move back into Jerusalem. I know we're looking at this rebuilding project, and we, uh, but the people didn't want to move back into it. We're actually going to see they, they cast lots to see who would have to go in. So that's the first list that we're going to see. In verses 20 through 36, we're going to see a list of those who settled in the surrounding towns and villages. So kind of our, our suburbs and our surrounding metro. And then verses 1 through 26 of chapter 12 records a list of all the priests and Levites who returned from exile. Now, we have a tendency to skip over these portions of Scripture because it's seemingly just a list of names to us. But it has an important part of the Bible's demonstration of God's faithfulness to his promises. Because these, these people represent life and lives that were changed, a life that had meaning. He had brought his people back from exile. The temple had now been restored the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, and they had recommitted themselves to obeying God's laws. So we're, we're at this place where it's time for a rededication. It's time for renewal, and you would want your name on this list. You'd want to make sure that you are included in these lists of names. You probably wouldn't even necessarily care which part you came into, but you say, I want to be on one of those lists. Nehemiah, he wants to populate the city. He wants to repopulate Jerusalem. He's put all this effort into this rebuilding project. He goes, now it's time to get people moving back in. And we need to populate our largely populated post-Christian cities with Christians in order to reach the vast majority of urbanites for Jesus. That's why my family felt a call to here. The network we work with, one of the things we like about that is they have 32 main cities, 32 of the largest cities in the country. And they've taken those and, and they statistically say, where are the least amount of churches, which would represent the least amount of Christ followers in the country? And Portland stuck out to my family like a sore thumb. And so as we're wrestling through and praying through, I was like, God, I'm going to Denver, Colorado. God, I'm going to Denver, Colorado. I want sunshine and mountains. And, and God ended up calling us here. Now, Denver's also one of those places of need, but Portland just really stuck out like a sore thumb. And that's some of your stories as well. And so sometimes people ask me, how can you move into the city of Portland? Wouldn't it be safer to live somewhere else? Wouldn't it be easier to live somewhere else? You know, we need to fill our cities with Christ followers, with Christ worshipers. And so they'll be felt here in Portland as it is in heaven. And so we find four highlights to Nehemiah's plan. His first part is repopulation. And so we see the list here begins with families of two tribes, the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin. That's verses 4 through 6 and verses 7 through 9. And we see the list of priests and Levites and gatekeepers, temple servants and a variety of city officers in verses 10 through 24. 
And then we see the list of cities outside Jerusalem where many of the people settled who didn't move all the way into the city. The second highlight is organization. There's an obvious organization of the people here. The people, these less, they represent, they knew their ancestry and their present family and religious leaders. The third highlight is participation. We see an active participation by the people during the resettling process. One example is those that were chosen by lot to move back into the city of Jerusalem because they didn't actually want to live in the city, but we still see an active willingness on the part of those who were called to move back in. My last trip to Portland, I hadn't planned on sharing this, but uh, I was reminded of the other day when we were out as a family. My, one of my last trips to Portland prior to actually moving, I was meeting uh, with a guy who's, uh, his name's Wes, who's a church planning catalyst with our organization. And, and Wes is really good. Um, I can just imagine it around Tampa County. He kind of uses his hands like this. He's like, you know, what's the Spirit saying to you? What's the Spirit saying to you? And in that moment, the Spirit was saying, in my mind, nothing to me. But another voice in my head was saying, I want to get the heck out of Dodge, and I never want to come back to this city. I was scared. I was freaked out. I said, I do not want to move to the city of Portland. And I couldn't even, I used to have a good appetite. I couldn't eat the food that we had in front of us. And I, I don't even think I shared that with my wife until real recently. I said, you can share that with Wes. Because I just remember I had this freak out moment. I was like, I, I do not want to move back into this place. But thank you to you who have moved here, that you've been participating in what God is calling us to be here in the city of Portland. The fourth highlight is a religious base. Part of Nehemiah's plan to revitalize Jerusalem was a religious base. This base allowed for cohesion and efficiency among the people, as well as a strong sense of personal growth. This was a new chapter for the people of God. With the restoration of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls, the people of God had now returned to Jerusalem. God's word was at the heart of their communal life together, and the sacrificial system was up and running once again. And God had brought them back from exile into their own land and back into a covenant relationship with him. Now, at Nehemiah's point in salvation history, everything was geared around the temple, the place of God-ordained worship and God-ordained sacrifice. The people enjoyed the benefits of this covenant relationship, but they still did not have direct access to his presence. We today have even more of a reason to rejoice because of God's faithfulness to his promises, and they have been fulfilled in Jesus. God's promises of a return exile were only partially fulfilled in Nehemiah's generation. But Jesus' death has opened the way in God's presence for every single one of us in this room and every single, one of the, every single person in the city of Portland, in our nation, and in our world. That should cause us to celebrate. After the Titanic sank on April 15, 1912, there was only one list that carried any significance, the list of known survivors. It no longer mattered what list your name appeared on at the beginning of the voyage. After sinking, the only one that really mattered was the list of those that were still alive. The same applies to us today. It doesn't really matter what list your name has been included on throughout your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's captain of the football team, or maybe you were the valedictorian, or maybe you're the manager at your job, or maybe you're the owner, or maybe you're none of those things. But it doesn't really matter. But Jesus has made it possible for our names to be included on the only list that matters for eternity when we gather around his throne and the lists are open and read out loud for all to hear, those who praise and worship him around his throne of glory. Maybe you're in here this evening and you say, you know what? I'm not sure what name, what list my name is on. I'm not really sure if my, my name is on that list that matters for all of eternity. Tonight, we would love to have the opportunity as Sojourn Church to introduce you to Jesus if that is you, please come find me in the back during our response time. I'm going to stand right there by the door. We can go outside if you need to. We can go into that room. And you say, I'm not that kind of person. I'm really shy. Like, that's okay. I will take you out to coffee. 
I'll even take you out to dinner if that is you tonight and that you have an interest in that. I would love to do that. And we see here in Nehemiah today that the people had recommitted themselves to the covenant that assured them of this salvation. So how will we, the people of God, as sojourn church, be able to exist for the city of Portland? First, we must live in the city. Now, not all of us have to live in the city. It's okay for some of us to live outside of the city. But I believe if we're going to be a church for the city, that the majority of us need to live in the city. I actually know one pastor here, I won't mention his name or his church, but the first person he fired from his staff was a person who refused to move into the city because it was a value of theirs as a church. And he kept telling the guy, you need to move, you got this timeline, you got this timeline, and the guy wouldn't do it, and he let him go in front of everybody on stage. I'm not saying that that's what he should have done, but that sticks out in my mind that I want the majority of us, if we're going to be for the city, the majority of us should live in the city. Moving here, people say, why don't you live in Vancouver? Why don't you go to Beaver? I've looked it up. Like, it's cheaper to live in these areas. I said, I know that, but God is calling me into the city. One of, our, one of the visions that I have for our church, I'd love to see us start a gospel community in every neighborhood of Portland. 95 neighborhoods. Now, I'm, I know you might say, that sounds like a really big, hairy, audacious goal. That's what we used in, in the company I worked for. I moved here. And like, you know what? It is. And that's huge. You might say, we'll never do that. Okay, let's start smaller. I would love to see us start a gospel community in every neighborhood in inner northeast Portland. That's 12. We've got one down. We've got 11 more to go. Okay? And so I hope you guys are, are on this journey with me because we want to see gospel saturation throughout our neighborhoods and throughout our city. Second, we must be a community in the city. We must be a distinctly Christian community. We're not just a club. We could, we could be a, a, a board game club, or we could be a music club, or we could be a food club. I do, I do love to eat, and we do a lot of stuff around the table, but we have to be a distinctly Christian community. We must function as a family and model family life and care for families. The church is the only group set up to do that in a holistic way. Other groups can do aspects of that, but we as the church are the only ones set up to do that in a very holistic way. Third is we must be a biblical community. Micah 6, 8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so we must act justly, not just for Christians. We must act justly on the behalf of all mankind, of all the people in our city. We must love mercy. We must try to show mercy always and in all possible ways to every single person. We must walk humbly with God. And the fourth, we need a vision. We need a vision for the type of city that we hope to see established, the idea of the kingdom of God as it is in Portland, as it is in heaven. That we want to see that reflected and we want to see that lived out. I think about two and a half, three years ago when I was sharing in different uh, groups about coming to Portland, what we wanted to do. And it really talked about living out the one another's of scripture. And I always said this, and I still believe this. If a group of people was actually living out faithfully and consistently the one another's that we find in scripture, and there's a lot of them, who wouldn't be attracted to that? Who wouldn't see that group of people and say, man, I want to join. I don't know what it is they have. I don't know what it is they bought into, but I want that. And I firmly believe that as we would live this out and that we have a vision for that, that people in our city would say, what, what is it you have? Now, it may not be our Sunday gathering that they come to. It may be a table. It may be a gospel community. It may be something else. But as we would live that out as the people of God, as a community of God, as sojourn church, I believe that they would want that. Because who wouldn't want that? Who, who wouldn't be attracted to that. And so when people say, are you a, a missional church or a tractional church? I typically say both, because to me the attraction would come out of living out those values that we see in the New Testament. So as we continue worshiping, I want us to put into practice our commitment to God through responding to his word. We'll do that through worshiping. 
Maybe some as you're worshiping, as Jacob is leading us, that we'll, we'll sing back words to God of our, our commitments to him, of our obedience to him, of the covenant that we've made, that God has made between us and him. We'll respond by giving. Some of us already came early. We gave some of our time, some of our talents, set things up, make sure there was hot coffee and tea and pastries, all those things. Maybe we need to give a prayer, maybe a prayer of confession, maybe a prayer of repentance. Maybe you're saying, Maybe someone's saying, I need to surrender to you, God, because I'm, I'm not in that position. I don't know what list I'm on. We're going to give through our treasure. We'll give generously of our finances, as we saw tonight. They valued giving generously of their first fruits, of their best. You know, and on that note, what does that look like for you? It's going to look different for every single one of us because we all make different amounts of money. We all have different family scenarios, different bills that we pay. But what does that look like? Typically this time of year, maybe because I, I grew up in a tradition where we always try to give a a big offering at the end of the year towards international missions. So maybe that's why I think of this. Like this time of year, I'm always challenging myself. Like I know we're going to spend all this on Christmas and Thanksgiving meals and, and Christmas meals, but man, how much are we just going to give away? And so individually as families and then as a church family, how much are we just going to give away for the kingdom of God to be expanded? And maybe even giving up some things that we love for something that we love even more, which is the expansion of the kingdom of God. And then we're going to respond through communion, through the Lord's table. As a church, this is how we remember week in and week out what the Lord has done. We believe it again, and we commit again to do what Jesus did. Take this time. Don't feel like you have to get up right away. No judgment if you do, but don't feel like you have to get up right away. You can self-examine your life. Take time to reflect. They're going to play a couple of songs. You don't feel like you have to do it in the first song. To remember the death of Christ and to anticipate his return. The bread and the cup are symbols to us of his body and blood that were broken for us and spilled out for the salvation of the world. And as, as often as we gather, we want to remember what he did for us. So if you are a Christ follower, we invite you to participate, to take that time and then to get out of your seat in response. If you're not a Christ follower, we invite you to meditate on this message and to, and to say, God, I don't know where I'm at. Maybe I'm not on that list. I'm not sure. And just, God, would you reveal yourself to me? And once again, I'll be in the back. If you want to talk to me or if anyone here just needs prayer, I'd love to pray with you. We've gotten to see that kind of in action a little bit over the last few months. And I value that. I highly value that. I'm honored to pray with you. So let me pray for us. We'll close this time out. Jacob and Amanda will come back up and we'll respond and worship you, Jesus. God, we come to you and we see how your people here responded. Lord, by laying out their obedience they wanted to live to you, God, the, the covenant that they were making before you. And God, we know that Jesus has come in and fulfilled all the things of the law, but God, that you have, you're still calling us to acts of obedience. Lord, as a response of worship to you, not a, out of religious duty, not out of legalism that's hoarded over our head, but God, as a response of worship to you, 